Hello and welcome to the Bloody Bizarre Podcast episode. Who cares? Don't worry about saying what episode number. Yeah, because I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I off the off the very top. I want to say my name's Emma. My name's Sarah. We haven't done that the last two episodes. Uh, people know. They do not. It's all our friends listening. <laughs> no. No, it's not just all our friends. It's our friend. Well, I guess it's our friend in in um, America and our friend in. Yeah, they know by now. <laughs> <laughs> um, they know not to expect professionalism as well. I think it's safe to say. I think you can um, hope for professionalism. Hope for the best. Expect the worst. Yeah, 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 that's probably a good way to put it. I also wanted to say at the top that I that shirts have been ordered for those who have requested them. <laughs> And they are on their way. I requested one, didn't I? Yes, Can you I did. have one? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you did request one, but I got you one because I figured like it would be a little bit weird if I didn't get you, the co-host, yeah. a shirt. Yeah, it's like um, it can be like a uniform. Do you want to see them? Yeah, I do. Like I said, they're very plain, right? Mm-hmm. Which I prefer. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, they're sick, hey? Yeah. Yeah, um, I can't wait to get one. I am a little bit nervous, though, because they're white and so, yeah. I can't keep white clothes white, but we'll see how we go. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I know. It's going to be funny because I haven't told many people I know about the podcast, so it'll be really funny if I just randomly rock up somewhere. Wearing... They'll just be like, oh, is that one of your murder podcasts? And you'll be like, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You should listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> Surprise, it's me. <laughs> um, okay. So was there anything you want to talk about before we get started? Because I'll, I'll let you know that this is probably... Your longest one. The longest one I've ever done. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> like I could have... I actually considered like, should I cut this into two? But I don't think it's... That long enough. I don't think I've done quite enough research for two, but it is a Um, lot. We can just dive straight in. Okay. There was nothing you wanted to talk about. Oh, I did want to say I'm sorry for um, interrupting so much. On the last one? Mm. Like I say, I could edit most of it out, but there was just the times that you like talked at the same time that I was talking. (laughs) Well, I'm going to try not to do it this episode. (laughs) It's not that, it's not like it's an ongoing problem. I don't know. Maybe you were just feeling very manic. I was manic. You weren't, you weren't in the best headspace when we recorded that episode so that's yeah it's, it's fine the first two you guys know i think by now that we record two at a time so you know if i'm that way in the one episode i'm going to be that way in the very next one because realistically for us it was minutes later that we recorded it sorry about it so yeah <laughs> am, am i going to apologize for my mental health oh have you yeah. um this is like totally off topic have you heard about that um it, it's just crime related that's why i thought of it that um woman in england who's gone missing recently and like it, it's been 12 days and shannon might have told me about this was she on a, t- a zoom call yeah, yeah shannon told me about this but like the police are saying it's not suspicious and that she just fell in the river and like she's a strong swim- her family like she's a strong swimmer and it's like a, a fairly calm river But like, yeah, I don't know. This is like the information that I've got is secondhand. So I don't know. I'm always like... Yeah, Shannon was telling me about it last week Mm -hmm. um, because I was telling her about the Idaho murders. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she was telling me about this one and I was like, I haven't heard of it. uh, Nicole, I think her name is. Right. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, She's got two little girls and she like dropped them off at school and then every day she would drop... She was, like, walking the dog, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So every day she would drop the girls off at school, then take the dog for a walk around this track. Mm. It was, like, her little routine. And then, yeah, within, like, 10 minutes or so of her joining the Zoom call and the Zoom call ending, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's just, like, disappeared. So weird. So weird, so sad. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's Maybe it, more info will come out about that. I, I think so, definitely. Because yeah. at the moment, yeah, it seems 
what I've heard is that the police are a bit sort of like it was an accident. There's nothing mm. suspicious, but I don't know. We've seen that happen before, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who knows? But yeah, anyway, that's that's it. Should we get started with mine? Yeah, yeah. Jump in. Um, Do you remember what I was? No, I was going to say I've got no idea what you're doing. Okay, everybody, get your drinks ready. You're okay. going to need them for this one because okay. it is like it's big and it's heavy. All right. Okay. I'm going to be talking about the Luna Park ghost fire. Oh, that's right. You told me this last week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not this story. You told me you were doing this last week. Yeah. Yeah. And boy, howdy. There's a lot to it. I'll tell you my sources. So the main one that I used, which some people might have seen this documentary, but it's 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 really, really good, um, is Exposed, the Ghost Train Fire by the ABC. It's the same lot that did the kelly lane exposed documentary mm. series so they're all like three-parters so i'm expecting some biased reporting well you'll have to wait and see wikipedia mm-hmm. of course yeah, yeah newspaper article by the bulletin from um the 26th of june 1979 titled inquest begins on luna park just for fun lunaparksydney.com and police.newsouthwales.gov.au okay so lydney <laughs> <laughs> lydney I'll, I'll leave that in. That's, yeah. that's pretty funny. <laughs> Sydney's Luna Park. <laughs> Lydney's Luna Park. <laughs> Sydney's Luna Park opened in 1935 after entrepreneurs brought it over from South Australia. Its name was taken from the book uh, Trip to the Moon by H.G. Wells, and it was based on the OG park in New York. That's the one that's at Coney, Coney Island. Mm-hmm. So it was like all based on that, but this happened in like turn of the century, not turn of the century. You know, what it I was mean. based on the the part of Coney Island. So was Coney Island called Luna Park at some point? Um, I don't know. Or maybe they just were like, we'll base it on that, but we'll call it Luna Park. Yeah, the Luna Park name was from this book. Yeah. Okay. Also, I think it's weird that it was based on that, given that it's got that big mouth. Like, where did the mouth come from? You know, mm. where do they where do they draw inspiration for that? He's a clown. In the seventies, Luna Park was like in its heyday mm. it was like the ever it was like the place to be so people in sydney like families would be there teenagers would be there like it was like a really cool thing to do are and you sure were they not dorky teenagers apparently not no okay. apparently it was like a cool place to be and it was also a really big tourist attraction so in the 70s artist um, Martin Sharp and some others were commissioned to restore artwork around the park so Martin restored like the I don't know if you know this but the um, clown that's out the front the big mouth that has to get restored quite frequently because it's it so close sense. to the water yeah salt air and, and the sun as well and yeah and yeah. whenever they restore it um, they change it slightly so it looks oh. a lot creepier. Do you have photos? Uh, yeah, I do. You can show me later. It's all right. Okay. Yeah, so it's changed a lot. If you look at it over the years, it used to be really creepy. Nowadays, it is still like kind of creepy. I mean, but yeah, clowns. Yeah, it's... but it used to look like angry. Like it, it's <laughs> weird. <laughs> so anyway, um, these artists like did all of this revamping in the 70s. So by the time that this happened. They were like. 
in 79. The, the brief to for the renovation of it was just it just one line and it just said less creepy. Less creepy. Yeah. And it feels like they have to do that every time because yeah. it's gotten progressively less creepy. They're trying they're to like, make it but like... But last time we made it less creepy. They're like, it's still fucking creepy. <laughs> like, when you look oh, at it, it every cannot time... Be that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, the original one has, like, black eyes. It's... And every time Hang you on, see I'm it... Look it up. Like, they try and give it juicier cheeks and, like, more of a smile, but... <laughs> It's really funny. Hang on. <laughs> Original Luna Park base. <gasps> oh my goodness. Show me. Show me the one you've got. Yeah. Yep. Oh. And it it like does not get better for a while. Look at 1960. Mhm. Mhm. What were they trying oh. to do? Yeah. And yeah. Then she if, angry. <laughs> and then if you look at it now, it's a little bit like softer. It's more um, cherubic. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah. Anyway, all of this is to say that it it had had a big revamp and um. A lot of these artists as well were really on board protecting Luna Park. So before I get into the timeline of what happened with this or the yeah. investigation or any of the main stuff, I just wanted to quickly touch on the creepy photo that often gets bandied around with this case and talked about a lot, which you probably thought was what I was going to mainly talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you have seen this photo, right? Yes, I have. Of What's his name? So I'll, I'll explain okay. it. It's a little boy who Mm -hmm. goes on to be one of the victims of this fire and he's got this creepy character standing behind him with a loincloth thing on horns. You've seen it. I'm just describing it. Yeah, describe it for people that haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, And he's got like a weird creepy animal mask on. It's super weird. It looks like tribalistic. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And he's like shirtless. Yeah, he's got his arm around this kid in yeah. this photo. And so this photo was the last photo ever taken of this little boy. It looks like um, like the, the guy in the mask wanders around the, the park and like people pay to have a photo with him, that kind of shit. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's what it seems like. Yeah. But the man's never come forward as like a worker because obviously it's quite a famous photo. He's <laughs> never come forward, which has kind of added to the mystique around this. And in addition this weird creepy costume and mask it looks eerily like the demon Moloch Moloch that's the word Moloch yeah yeah. so Moloch's thing his MO is child sacrifice so all of the victims bar one of this fire were children and on top of that it's his thing was usually uh, child sacrifice through fire so it is fucking creepy it's a like very very creepy coincidence yes but i think you'll agree that by the time i get through all this i think you'll agree that it is just a coincidence but it is a fucking weird coincidence it's very creepy so last week at work on Friday afternoon, one of my work colleagues, who I got into Red Handed, came over to me and was like, I've been listening to Red Handed. And I said, oh, yeah, you got any favorite episodes? And he said, yeah, this one where this lady gets taken out to the desert and she survives. Um, and she has like a YouTube channel and stuff. And I was like, oh, I can't remember that one. And then he showed me Andrew Urialis or whatever the guy's name was that did it. And I was like, oh, I'll have to re-listen because I couldn't like I couldn't remember listening to that one. And then when I got home, Shannon came over and we, we flicked on um, I Survived a Serial Killer. Guess what the first episode was? No way. Oh, fire out. That's so weird. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I think it is coincidental. But um, so first, let's talk about the ghost train. Okay. It was built in the 1930s. And when this fire occurred in 1979, it was still the most popular. It's wow. still one of the most popular rides at the park. It can't have been a very good park. Why? And a, a 1930s ghost train is the most popular ride in 1979. 
Well, I think it's got that kind of... Um, Nostalgia? Yeah, and, like, you know, it's just... Oh, you've got to ride the ghost train. Yeah. It's so rickety. Yeah, and, like, <laughs> maybe, like, a little bit funny, a little bit spooky, like... Kitschy? Just, yeah, kitschy, yeah. Um, so everyone who went to Luna Park would end up going on the ghost train at some point. It was, like, a thing you had to do before you left. Make um, out with your, your... Yeah, your boo. So the ghost train covered 180 metres of track, but it was very twisty and windy and it was obviously on this it was like done like this on purpose because it, you know you want to on the ghost train you feel like you're going this way and then all of a sudden you're going this yeah, way also 180 meters doesn't seem like that much track yeah yeah well i guess like a lot of it is like winding yeah. around and stuff yeah so yeah it was it was done on purpose to disorient people inside the ride there were the usual ghost train things like skeletons a dragon's head gravestones and most of the ride was pitch black um, it was just lit up with a few bits of lighting, like glow in the dark mm-hmm. paint and stuff like that, like very low tech. But another part of the ride that we'll get into in a lot more detail later, it becomes very important later, is there was this little fake fireplace at one part of the ride and you, you're going to laugh when you hear like what it was, but they had a fan pointing upwards and they had some yellow and red streamers. <laughs> and, and, a wind, and a wind machine or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. a fan, yeah. Why yeah. am I not listening to what you're saying? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, so they had these like yellow and red streamers that were just like making... Dancing. <laughs> yeah. It was an inflatable balloon guy. Yeah, 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 pretty much. So that was the fake fireplace. But no actual heat or anything like that. Okay, so now let's get into the timeline a little bit more and we'll also start talking about the victims here. It's really, really sad. This story is very, very sad, but that's beside the point. So on the night of Saturday, the 9th of June, 1979, Luna Park was pumping like it was in those days. Young people, old people, families, everyone was there just having a grand old time. One particular family who were there were the Godsons. So wife Jenny, husband John, and their two young boys, Damien, six, and Craig, five. The family were from a rural town called Warren, and they'd saved up to do this big family trip to Sydney. So they'd, like, gone to Taronga Zoo. They'd done all of the touristy things. And, of course, going to Luna Park was, like, a big thing on their list. Mm -hmm. And they'd they'd been there all day, and they'd had the best time. They'd had so much fun. It's really sad in the documentary. The mum talks about like what a great day they'd had together and it was starting to get late by this stage and the two boys were starting to get tired. So John and Jenny basically decided it was time to call it a night. But before they left, Jenny realised that they had a couple of tickets left for Mm. rides. So she was like, "Um, all right, uh, what was your favourite ride? We'll We'll go on one more ride before we leave. And they said the ghost train. So... Before they started lining up for the ghost train, Jenny was like, okay, yep, um, I feel like an ice cream. Do you guys want an ice cream? And they were like, no, no, we don't want an ice cream. So she was like, okay, well, wait for me. I'm going to go get an ice cream and then we'll start lining up for the ghost train. For some reason, Jenny's not sure why they didn't wait for her. They just went and lined up. I reckon it was probably that the boys started getting antsy and dad was like, oh, fuck it. I'm just going to take them on. And then by the time Jenny gets back, like we can just go. So also lining up were five young boys from nearby Waverley College. The boys were Jonathan Billings, 13, Richard Carroll, 12, Michael Johnson, 13, Seamus Rahili, 13, and Jason Holman, 12. So it was a big night for the boys because it was the first time their parents had let them out like by themselves. Mm. And so they had to get out on this night. They'd been like asking their parents for so long and Mm -hmm. their parents had finally let up and been like, okay, you're all going together. Yep. 
I mean, it's the 70s, you know. It's Luna Park. It's Luna Park, exactly. I thought it was safe. But they did have to, like, catch public transport. They had to catch the ferry across. Like, it was a big deal for them. They were all best friends and they were, like, they were going to meet some girls there. It was, like, a Mm. really exciting Mm -hmm. sort of night for them. I feel like around, like, 13, 14 was when we were allowed to go out on our own. Yeah, I remember the first time mum and dad let me catch the train to Carousel with Jamie. And I think we were about 12. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, this was – it was just just to say that it was, like, a very exciting night for them. Yeah, They were all pumped. So, the – yeah, the boys were all best friends, but this Jason Holman kid, he was a year younger than them, and he – he, he talks about this night. Spoiler alert, he's, he's the only survivor. Okay. And he says that he was the tag along of the group. He was like, yeah. I was the younger one. I was the little tag along. But he was like, they, were, they never made me feel bad for it. They never, yeah. like, were mean about it. Yeah. He, he could feel that he was kind of on the <laughs> yeah. Other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I think I get the impression that these boys were quite, like, well-liked, cool kind of kids. And so he was probably just happy to be included. I mean, to be the, to be a year younger and to be hanging out with the cool kids. With the cool boys. He of must the have been year. very cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the thing is, these boys all sound really lovely yeah. as well. They they all played footy. They were good at school, good academically. They were liked by everyone, other students, teachers, their brothers and sisters, mums and dads. Like, everybody just says they were just the loveliest kids. There's one of the kids that just, like, goes to show you what kind of kids they were. He said that when he grew up, he wanted to go to Africa to shoot the animals, but not with a gun, with a camera. Oh, like, yeah, like they, they just seem like they were very, very nice kids. Um, and like the, in the documentary, they talked to one of the boy's sisters and she's like, yep, he was an amazing big brother. It's just really, really sad. They they all had a lot of promise. They were all very smart. And also this Jason Holman guy who they talked to, you can just tell that he's also like a very good, nice person. And same with their family members. Their family members seem lovely. So anyway, enough about the boys. So John Godson and his sons are lining up for the ride while... While Jenny's getting ice cream. The five Waverly boys are lining up and just ahead of them in the line are some older kids or like young adults. I, I can't remember the exact ages, but they were sort of 17 to 22-ish. Um, and a couple of them were on dates or they were just like in a, a group of friends and they go through the ride. One of them comes around the corner and she talks in the documentary and in that spot where the imitation fire usually is, she's like that's a real fire mm. and she's been on the ride before so she knows, she knows it's that, streamers. that it's not usually a real fire mm. so she says this to the guy next to her and he's like no it's not like it's never a real fire so she puts her hand out when they come around close to it and she feels heat coming off it so she doesn't end up saying anything when she gets out because Oof. she she yeah i know the guilt but she sort of says like i was a teenager and i was just thinking just that, rationalized like, it away like, yeah and yeah. i think you would too because you'd yeah. be like oh maybe it's a new feature yep. maybe they're trying to make it more realistic yep. um yep. Yep. the fact that it was in the fake fireplace we'll go on to talk about how that's suspicious in itself yeah. but it's i think i um, immediately have like some thoughts in my head of how it could have gotten there but you, I think it's reasonable to say that people would be like, oh, I guess it's meant to be like that. Yeah, of I guess course. it's meant of to course. be there. I think it's perfectly understandable why she didn't say anything. Yeah, but obviously, yeah, she's got a lot of guilt. Of course. Um, and yep. so do a few people. So things become a lot more fucked for the next lot of people through. The next lot of people through, it, it sort of starts getting more and more fucked as people go through. Okay. So the next lot of people that they spoke to basically immediately could smell smoke when yeah. they came in. And so that's obviously weird. Once they were through, 
and you've got to remember it's windy yeah. so they're like you can't see immediately what you, what's coming up on the horizon or yeah whatever. and yeah. also like if the fire's here at some point so you're, you're using hand signals that these people can't see yeah i know i know i'm trying to so if the fire's over this way and you're moving over the opposite way because the track's winding so yeah. at some points the fire's not going to feel as bad of and then course. you're going to wind yeah. back around yes they once they were winding back around closer to where this fire was they started to see flames but there was no way out because they were in this pitch black ride that's twisting around all over the place they didn't know where to go or what to do so when they got to the end i'm kind of skipping through this quite a lot because otherwise it would be a two-parter but they talked to a lot of people who were like survivors of this and yeah there's some people who sat and stayed in their chairs and were just lucky enough to get out there's some people actually got out and like Mm. ended up like But anyway, when they got out, they said to the people who were running the ride, they were like, there's a fire. But the person who was letting the carriages through and they've talked to a lot of the staff who were on that night. One of them is dead and it's this guy. So he kind of fobbed them off and Mm. he thought that they were just like playing silly buggers and just like being stupid, like teenagers, Mm. whatever. Yeah, there's a fake fire in there. So he he just was like, "Um, okay, and he let the next carriage through. This Mm. was the one with the four Waverly boys on it. So Jason was right behind them, but obviously because he was the like kind of tag along one, Mm. he was like in the separate carriage behind them. He actually does push the thing to also let Jason's carriage through, but at the last minute he realised, so I think that possibly at this point some smoke starts coming out when he pushes the thing to let the boys through. So at the last minute, he grabs Jason out of his seat. So Jason's carriage goes through, but he actually pulls Jason out. Wow. So at first, Jason said at that moment he was annoyed he was like what are you doing my friends just went through i want to go through but he said there was no smoke or anything that we could see from the outside but very quickly it started to become more apparent that there was smoke and so they started to smell it things started to become more chaotic he said at first there was no screaming or anything but then it starts to things sort of ramp up because people who were stuck in there this is what i was talking about with the survivors people started to like try and knock down partitions like Mm. people were panicking as people are escaping and walls are coming down and stuff thick black smoke starts Mm. coming out of the ghost train so it starts becoming really obvious to everyone outside at the park that this is really bad godson comes back from getting her ice cream and the train is obviously on fire. So at this point, she realizes that her family are in there and she is just waiting for their carriage to come out because there's still carriages yeah. coming out at this With time. people on them? People come, yeah, yeah, people coming out, you know, coughing and spluttering. Yeah. But what starts happening is that carriages start coming out empty and on fire. So That's so... The visual is fucked. Yeah. Yeah, it's such yeah. a fucked visual. Like, I've got goosebumps thinking about it. When Jason sees this, he has a complete meltdown. Like, mm. he it just has, like, a breakdown. Mm. He has to be taken away. He, yeah. One of the ride operators, and I actually tried to look for his name. It's in the documentary, but I didn't have time to go back and, like, write it in. You can see I've got a little blank space there because i wanted to write it in because this guy's a hero in the documentary he speaks to them so you can you can find it there but basically he knew this ride like the back of his hand because he'd worked on it for ages and before they would open the ride every day he would walk the track so he knew the track even in the dark he ran in there 
and he saved a lot of people. Mm. They're not sure exactly how many people he saved, yeah. but he was like, like in the like, smoke and way, everything. He was way. grabbing people, oh, to, yeah. like getting them out. He yeah. saved a lot of people. Yeah. And he actually saw the boys with their dad, the Godsons. Mm. And um, I cried when I was researching <laughs> because he said that the dad was huddled over the boys. Yeah. So he was protecting them. And he has, again, a lot of survivor's guilt yeah. because he says, I could see them. They were just out of reach. But yeah. the, the smoke at that point was so thick. Of he was course. choking. Yeah. And, and I imagine just, 1930s material. Oh, it would have gone up. Yeah. yeah. And it would have been like toxic and it went up. There's other reasons it might have gone up the way it yeah. did as well. But, yeah, so he couldn't save them. He mm-hmm. had to run back out. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he he talks about he's like, everyone should have got out. I should have got them out. But he saved so many people. Yeah. Not long after this, so he runs out. And by this stage, thick black smoke, the whole thing is on fire. It's It looks like hell. Um, and there's a massive explosion. Um, so I guess my thought when I was watching this was like, I hope that just killed everyone instantly at that point. Yeah, well, I mean... I mean, I think smoke inhalation kills people pretty quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. But it's they always just say really... like they always say smoke inhalation kills people before the flames ever even touch them. Yeah, but that's in house fires, yeah. not something like this where it's like. Anyway, the people who witnessed the fire said that this. It, it was a huge fire, a roaring inferno. Like mm. it was a very big fire. Even the firefighters who arrived, they talk in the documentary, they remember it as like a particularly vicious fire. One of the veteran fireys that they spoke with um, said it was the worst fire he's ever attended, just in terms of the ferocity of the fire. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the fireys, they. Firefighters? For international. I'm sure people can put two and two together there. <laughs> When they arrived, they encountered some problems too. There was no water pressure in their hoses, so they were pointing hoses at the fire and water was just trickling out. So they had to pump water from the harbour, from Sydney Harbour, to get enough water pressure to actually put the fire out. Um, Did they figure out why that was? Are you going to get to that? No. That's just another – there's a lot of things that That went wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the fire was out by midnight and police – did it start? Like eight? No, no, no. No, sorry, I'm not sure exactly what time it started. Okay. but it's Like an hour or something. Yeah, yeah okay. okay. So police immediately got to work removing the bodies of those people that I mentioned. So, it was, so sorry, how many people perished? So it, was the, so it was the father and the two sons, the Godsons, yeah. oh. and then the four boys from Waverley College, yep. seven people. Yeah, so six children and one adult. Okay. There wasn't much left of the bodies, obviously. It was, mm-hmm. They were just Charred, burnt. Yeah. yeah. But they they were able to figure out where everyone was. Um, the father and the two boys were huddled together, so it does seem like he was over the top of them, trying to like shield mm. them from the fire. And the Waverly boys were caught in the tunnel. It looked like they'd gotten out of their carriage and just were yeah. panicking, trying to get out. Yeah, which is also so freaking sad to think about. So where they looked at where when they looked at where the Waverly boys bodies were in the tunnels they didn't have a chance they were like deep within the tunnels there was no exits anywhere they were fucked so the last body was was removed at around 6 a.m and this is where the investigation starts and this is where it starts getting particularly dodgy so only nine hours later at 3 p.m the next day Doug Knight who was the lead detective announced that the fire was due to an electrical fault nine Mm. hours 
He said that they I mean, were, like I feel like you wouldn't have even cleared the rubble. Yeah, exactly. They they started later. clearing the rubble way before they should. Like they didn't tape it off and stuff. Like they just started clearing. Every, once the bodies were out, they just started. But, clearing but I mean, it. I feel like you wouldn't have even cleared the rubble to find an electrical fault. Yeah. So by this point, they had cleared the rubble, but that's because they, as soon as that last body was out, they just immediately start. They got the crane in. They got everything moved out. Oh, right, so yeah. like, where was the investigation? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway. He said that there were four witnesses who said they saw sparks right before the fire started around like the um, fuse box thing. So obviously it's like, oh, okay, four witnesses saw that. But the ABC spoke to dozens of people who were on the train when this happened just before, as well as employees. None of them saw that. In addition, the ABC went through all of the statements taken by the police because obviously there's like they have to keep record of all the statements. There wasn't a single one saying that. So where are these four people? Mm. Like, did he just say, yeah, there's four witnesses who've said this? Because there were no statements to back that up. People have also said, pointed out that all of the lights were still on on as the train was burning. There's pictures. All Mm. of the lights are still on on the train. So if there was an electrical fault, it would stand to reason that that would chuck the power out. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. Now, also remember those initial witnesses said that they first saw, saw flames around where that fake fireplace was. Mm. That's no it's, – it's kind of near the fuse box, but it's not – like it's around the bend from the fuse box. So, okay. again, this is like I'm using hand gestures, but like – it's the, Yeah, around the bend from the fuse box. So if, if the fire started at the fuse box, the flames would be there, not around the corner where yeah, the – Yeah, yeah. Finally, the southern fuse box, which is where they said this fire start, that's where he reckons that the electrical fault happened. It was one of the few things that wasn't burned. Mm. So in the photos of the rubble afterwards, I'll show you the photos after, everything is like leveled. And then there's the fuse box that looks like pretty okay. Is that because they they fire retardant fuse Possibly. boxes? Like they make them so that if there's a spark, it's not going to burn the whole fucking thing down? Possibly, but my thought is if the fire started in it and it was oh, able course. to escape, yeah. then yeah. surely there should be some like damage. Yeah. 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 Um, they asked firefighters about this who said it was very unlikely that's where the fire started. Overall, at the very least, it doesn't seem like there's a heap of evidence to support the theory that it was an electrical fault. Fires. Yeah. You might even say there's evidence that suggests it wasn't an electrical fault. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, another thing is why would they tell the media the fire started because of an electrical fault less than 24 hours after the fire? Why would they be so quick to do that, considering that there might be witnesses and stuff around? And you'll see that becomes problematic later on as well. Yeah, it seems like even if it was a, a cover-up, um, it's a shoddy cover-up. Oh, it's yeah. like they don't even know how to do a cover-up right. Yeah, yeah. So next there was a coronial inquest, okay. and this also happened very quickly, I think like a month or two after the fire. The coroner suggested that the most likely cause was that a passenger had dished a cigarette while on the ride. But he asked the police to investigate certain things and collect additional evidence because obviously as the coroner, he needs to like ask the, like, you need to investigate this, mm, investigate mm. that. And he said that they didn't. He says that the investigation was very surface level. I thought if the coroner said this needs to be done, they had to do it. Yeah, well, he basically said that, like, it was very, they were doing everything as, cert- like, if he was like, go and talk to this witness, they'd be like, oh, we tried calling this witness several oh, times okay. and they didn't respond. Yeah. It was very much, he was getting, he was hitting a brick wall. Yeah. So the coroner does talk in the documentary and he 
kind of is like, yeah, it was a shoddy investigation, but I, this is all I had to work with mm. at the time. Mm. Um, and yeah, so there's other police officers who have echoed this sentiment. So it's not just people in the community because I know I am very wary of like just random people being like, the police did a shitty investigation because I'm like, you don't know how the police force works. You don't know the investigation. Sometimes, yeah, it's obvious. But sometimes I think that people are very quick to just be like, the police didn't do it right. But this is other cops who mm-hmm. have said, yeah, this was a I, shitty investigation. When you initially said that the fire was in the fireplace, I... I thought someone had thrown a match or a cigarette or something similar. I mean, those streamers, they would go up and then you've got mm-hmm. the added fan the that's fan. providing like oxygen to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And then the sort of that extra cover of, oh, well, in, when it's early, people yeah, are going to think that I'm it's just a fire in a little fire. Hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's the other thing. At the inquest, they didn't bother getting witnesses. So they got witnesses in, like this woman who'd seen the um, fire in the fireplace and stuff. They got all of the witnesses in. They didn't speak to any of them. They didn't ask them up to talk to them. It was really weird. There was this other guy that was there that night. His name is Greg Chard. And he told the police that he smelled kerosene. And like the other witnesses, he saw flames at that imitation fire. He said the police were like, well, how do you know what kerosene smells like? And he said, I used to go prawning and the boat used kerosene as fuel. Oh, in the motor. Yeah. 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 So he was like, I know that smell anywhere. It's Also, who doesn't know what kerosene smells like? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if I, like, in my head right now could tell you what kerosene smells like. But like, it smelled like a chemical accelerant. Like, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know what nail polish remover smells yeah, like. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, I, you I know can't what, think of what that smells like in, in, immediately in my head, but I know it when I smell it. And also just being like, I smelled a chemical smell. Yeah. Like, I think that's enough to but, be suspicious. But then also, also, like I said, I reckon that there would have been in the cladding of this place a ton of toxic paint and like yeah yeah so if that was burning i reckon it would have given off a chemical smell that's possible yeah so they didn't end up calling him up in the inquiry and he basically said nobody was very interested in what i had to say yeah. so i just let it go yeah because yeah he was just like well I, I told them they didn't want to hear it so um there was another employee who said that so in the documentary it's like quite dramatic the way they do this because they were like did you smell anything on the night and he was like yep and they were like what did you smell and he's like kerosene but the police didn't ask him anything like that so mm-hmm. that was the first time these um is it a closer look what do you mean what, what's the documentary called exposed exposed they are very dramatic they are to be fair the stuff that they pull up they do they expose a lot of things <laughs> um the name is good it is it's fitting <laughs> um he actually didn't know that somebody else had said it smelled like kerosene so they told him this during the documentary they were like you know there are other people who've said that it smelled like kerosene he was like oh well i don't know because nobody asked me nobody told me um this is just like this is not from the documentary but since the documentary aired another man has come forward who was there on that night who also said that he smelled kerosene when he was on the ride he said that his mum used to cook with a kerosene cooker so it was a very familiar smell to mm-hmm. him And he said that he was going to go to the police with this information. But then he saw on the news that the next day they were like, oh, it's an electrical fault. So he was like, oh, okay. Well, the police have said it's not suspicious. Mm. So I wonder if if kerosene was used in the ride somewhere. Like, I wonder if it's like what you said with like that unusual that they smelled kerosene. Yeah. Like if it was some some kind of like in the walls or I don't know. Yeah. It is weird though. Or like if it was like in the mechanics, it was used. At the very least, it's, it deserves further investigation. Unless they, they were like, well, yeah, you would have because of this, but then they should have just told them Mm. if if that were the case. But then it also seems like the, um, the investigation was shoddy. 
to say, yeah. you know, at the, the very least was um, not thorough. So mm. maybe they just didn't tell them. Now there's there's more dodginess. Okay. Now onto another witness, Les Dowd. So he was a homeless kid. He was living in a refuge at the time and the refuge had given the kids a bunch of passes to go to Luna Park for like to have a fun night away. Um, I believe he was about 17 at the time. He was there just like hanging out and he told the police that he'd heard a group of guys talking about matches and kerosene. He's since said that he's scared shitless because he's afraid that if any of those people involved are still around that he you know, he said he he looks over his shoulder all the time. Now, this is from his original statement. This is a quote. There was five blokes. I counted them. They were standing bunched up together facing the magic shop. One of them was about 18, 5'10 tall, blonde straight hair, shoulder length, skinny build, fair complexion, wearing brown boots coming halfway up his legs with his jeans tucked into them. He was wearing light blue jeans, slightly darker jacket with long sleeves, His left ear was pierced with a ring and a small gold cross hanging from it. On the lobe of his other ear, he had a light blue star tattoo. Sorry, how close was this guy? So he was sitting right there and he said because he was a street kid, he was like, I took notice. He was like, I really took notice of people. Before you give me that face, there are other people who, completely separate from Les Dowd, who have backed up this description. So the other four were 16 to 17. They all had earrings. I do remember one Hang of... Hang on. Hang on. How can you tell someone is 18 versus 17? He said the other four were 16 to 17, so maybe it's just, like, younger. So he said that the first guy was about 18. Okay. The other four were 16 to 17. They all had earrings. I do remember one of them had a navy blue jumper with ripped lower sleeves. They were all huddled together. He was looking at the ghost train, and I was about two feet away from him. And I heard one of them say, I spread kerosene, and I lit it with a match. Another one said, you're a fool. And then they started running towards the exit. Les had just gotten back to the refuge and gone to bed when not long after the police came and got him again for a second interview. The detective who did the first interview actually didn't know anything about this. So the detective who did the first interview, who got this statement from him, he's a good cop. They speak to him in the documentary. He is like, he's on the level. He didn't know that police had come back and got Les again for a second interview. He was like why like okay so les said the mood in the second interview was totally different Mm -hmm. um they challenged him to change his statement and they basically it sounds like they were saying to him if you don't change if you say that this is what happened there's going to be trouble for you so he did um the police said to him that so he's sitting in the room the police put his statement forward and said is this statement true and he said no and they asked him which part wasn't true, and he said all of it. Uh, he ended up being fined for that, and since then he said, yeah, my first statement was true, but, like, I didn't – I was scared. I didn't know what to do, so I just said, yeah, I made it all up just to get it all – so it's not my problem anymore. He said that he felt like it was safer to just say nothing. But there was another kid who was there who corroborated his story – she was also pressured by police to change her story and she wouldn't. She was a little bit younger, but she said, no, I'm not going to say something that's not true. Like, this is what I heard. This is what I saw. She said that ever since then, she's been looking over her shoulder, scared someone's out to get her. Now, some adults also saw some weird stuff as well that kind of backs up what this kid, what these kids saw. This guy, Bessel, who's one of the ride operators, saw a bunch of bikies enter the ride about 10 minutes before the fire was noticed. And this Les Dowd guy has, has said, yeah, they look like bikies. So I think that bikies... Oh, the ones that hit the... Sorry. That the, were huddled. The 17 and 18 year yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I think the bikies back then were maybe a bit more, um, I think of like the seventies, it's almost like a joke the way that they dressed, but like, you know, yeah, maybe they were like more identifiable. Yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, that, you, can, you can pretty much identify you can pick them now, yeah. I think, but I think it was very much obvious yeah. then. Um, so yeah, he said that was about 10, about 10 minutes before the fire was noticed. These bikies got on the ride. Um, the staff superintendent saw the same group and the description of the main blonde guy was extremely similar. So he said there was a blonde guy, mid-length hair, he had high boots on, blah, 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 blah. So Frank Boitano, who was working at the park at the time, he said he saw a bikey outside the ghost train when the fire broke out. Someone else saw them as well, mentioning the high brown boots in particular. Um, she was told by police that they couldn't prove it was related to the bikies and so they didn't bother putting it in her statement. Her husband saw them too. All, all of these different people saw them and it ended up being about seven or eight people who were on the record saying that they saw these guys with similar description like they each of them will say different things but all similar to what les dowd said so one mm-hmm. of them will say oh he had denim pants on with brown boots another mm-hmm. one will say he had blonde hair with another one will say he had a ring a earring with a little cross on it exactly but it all when you put it all together it's all corroborating mm-hmm. what he said and this is just the people who are going on the record saying this remembering that they it sounds like they weren't really getting statements from people so mm-hmm. Now, remember the Waverley boys were meant to meet some girls mm-hmm. at the park? That was like one of the, the yeah. things that was exciting about the night for them. Well, the girls didn't end up showing. Yeah. No, don't. <laughs> don't laugh at them. <laughs> the reason they didn't end up showing is because one of the girls' dads ended up saying, no, they weren't allowed to go. This girl was really, really distraught at the boy's funeral, really, really upset, so much so that the mum of one of the boys noticed. A little while later, this girl called the boy's mum to tell her that the reason they weren't allowed to go and meet the boys that night was because her dad had told her that something bad was going to happen at Luna Park that night, so they weren't allowed to go. Now, her dad was Jack Rooklyn, which that name might not mean anything right now, but Jack Rooklyn was a huge figure in organised crime in Mm. Sydney in the 70s. He was friends with some very, very shady people and very influential people. Jack Rooklyn was allegedly, I I don't know if this part has been proven, but he was allegedly paying, it it might have been, paying off the assistant commissioner, Jim Black, who was a crooked cop, Bill Allen, who was another crooked cop, and Detective Doug Knight, Mm. who was the lead investigator for this case. Now, you might be wondering why. It's obvious that something a bit dodgy is going on. Well, if we are to believe all these statements, Mm -hmm. yes. So if the police were covering this up, who were they covering for and why? Why would they want to cover up like an arson that has killed a bunch of kids? Like you would think that even police wouldn't. a place that would bring them in so much money in tourism that would now surely cop a hit from that. Mm, Yeah, but maybe they don't really give a shit about that if they're getting personal gain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, no, I'm saying like ordinarily they would mm, because you yeah, know, this would exactly. be, yeah, the state government would be like, you need to figure this out. It actually all fits together like a perfect little puzzle. Oh, now I love puzzles. I'm a puzzle queen. So that land that Luna Park was sitting on is right on Sydney Harbour. But it was crown land, so it's owned by the state. So it's not available for people to buy. So as much as mm-hmm. you could offer billions and billions, you can't buy it because it's owned by the Unless state government. The- it's not available. Yeah. 
So a developer, if they bought that land, could make millions because you could put luxury apartments there. Prime real estate. All you have to do is look at Sydney today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you wanted any chance of getting your hands on that land, you would need for Luna Park to close, basically. So you might think it's a bit kooky to go straight to arson. (laughs) But there's another player involved here who I haven't mentioned yet. And you might know who this person is. You might not, because when I watched it, I was like, that name's familiar. And then I remembered like underbelly and stuff. Anyway, so this man, he was again, very well known in crime circles and a well-known tactic used by him to control his property portfolio, which was extensive, was arson. This man was none other than Abe Saffron. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. Okay. So he was also known as Mr. Sin or King of the Cross because he owned a whole bunch of strip joints and stuff in Mm -hmm. um, King's Cross. And yeah, he was like the big guy in the underbelly world of Sydney at that time. Mm -hmm. He was a mafia associate and he ran some of the most notorious bars in King's Cross. What was his name again? Abe Saffron. He bribed cops. He paid people off so often that dirty cops called it being in on the joke. So they would say to other cops, are you in on the joke? This is like not not just like hearsay. This is like no 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 no. I, look, don't cops I, have have yeah, been I, I completely jailed and would like, believe that. Um, and it's been proven that you know seventies, eighties, nineties, even up to now. Yeah. So many times cops are uh, embroiled in these kinds of and rackets. in the seventies in King's even Cross. So, yeah. He'd yeah. essentially bought the police. Yeah. So back to Luna Park after the fire, it did close and the lease was put up for tender. So it was looking like this company, um, Kamingo, PTY, LTD, were going to win the tender. They had all these great ideas to bring the park back to its former glory, like were legit. Like, like repainting the face? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Less creepy face. They were like, even, first even, and foremost, yeah. like, we can leave the ghost fire for now, but yeah. you know, we need to change that fucking face. That face. <laughs> so then at the last minute, they didn't win the tender and it went to this company called Harborside Amusements. So in earnest, Harborside Amusements gutted the place. They um, sold almost all of the historical rides and artwork, like really sad because it was beautiful stuff from the 1930s, really original kind of like cool artwork and stuff that Martin, um, what's his name, Martin Sharp had done, like really cool individual Mm. stuff. They just sold it all for as much money as they could get. I can understand getting rid of the rides. Okay, listen to what they did. They brought in a heap of pokey machines. Okay, well, that's not right, but I can understand getting rid of the, the rides when there's... They f- didn't get rid of the rides. They just didn't maintain them, uh-huh. and they just sold a heap of the artwork and, like, the they, they sold things like the um the horse, what's it called? The carousel. carousel. Like, they sold beautiful things like that, but then they had, like, roller coasters that they just didn't maintain or anything. Did they let people on them still? Uh, I, I assume surely so. It was not. open. It was open to the public. Yeah, but surely not. I mean, it was the early 80s late 70s anyway so you might be wondering what does this have to do with abe saffron he didn't own harborside amusements but his cousins did Mm. so yeah and the pokies machines belonged to him so all the money from the pokies Mm -hmm. machines was coming to him and remember as well that the whole point was to run the place into the ground so that the government was like fuck it let's just sell it yeah luna park's not an attraction anymore and then obviously slimy rich Abe Saffron could come in and go oh I'll give you a squillion dollars for that land Mm. and then he could build his luxury apartments and make a million dollars so anyway this is all allegedly but I mean the stuff about his cousins owning that and stuff that's all Mm. legit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um 
So if this was the plan, it didn't work, obviously. Part of the lease agreement for the land was that there was a deadline for the park to be upgraded and for them to do all the stuff that they said they were going to do to bring the park back to its former glory. And they obviously didn't Didn't meet the deadline. I think that possibly they were hoping that the government would just go, ah, fuck it, don't worry about it. But no, the government was like, you haven't stuck to your end of the deal. I'm surprised the government wasn't paid off too. You know, I'm surprised it doesn't go all the way to the top. There is suspicion that it somewhat does. Somewhat. So... Yeah, of course, they had no intention of restoring anything. And when that deadline came and went, it was put up for tender again. And eventually it was taken over by people who actually did want to restore it. Um, and they now painted the face. They painted the face. The face is looking <laughs> slightly friendlier. Um, and now they're sitting on a 40-year lease. Oh. So after everything, if this was the reason that this happened, it was all for now. Like yeah. it just... As is so often the case yep. with these kinds of like schemes, yep. like people get hurt and people die and then it's like, what was it for? Was it fucking worth it? Of yeah. course it wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. Look, I can believe that. I can believe that an underworld boss ordered the, f- but what I think would be more likely is that he would do it after hours so that it caused more damage. Yeah. You know, but then I don't know. Look, I, c- I can imagine the, it. I can see it. I can see it happening. The theory though is basically that, so the bikies at the time were kind of like guns for hire. So mm. I think the theory is that Abe Saffron, through his connections, was like, I'll give you some money if you start a fire here. Mm. And then it was up to just, it was up to the bikies. So they, they were weren't masterminds. Yeah. yeah. So I actually, I don't think I've read it in here. So I'm just going to say about the, you know, it goes all the you way said, to the top. You said at least two Taylor Swift songs tonight. Um, like um, <laughs> She's just t- in my lexicon. Titles of yeah. them. You said blank space earlier and you just said mastermind. Yeah, I know. It's just, yeah. it's in there. Yeah. Um, so you were saying it goes all the way to the top. They yeah. have suggested that the premier at the time was getting paid off by Abe Saffron. Yeah. So they think that that might have what played was it? Who was the premier at the time? Neville something. But that long is, bottom, <laughs> never long bottom, exactly. But that is alleged. They yeah, haven't okay. been able to prove that. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, let's let's keep keep his name out your mouth. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Um. The the some of the reporting on this um ABC documentary it was like very like right wing. Uh, old people newspapers and they on were, ABC. Oh. No, no, no. That were oh. talking about this documentary because so this generated oh. a lot of heat, a lot of stuff, um, and a lot of the reporting was like, "How dare they talk about Neville? What's his name that way?" And mm, like, fuck <laughs> off. Yeah, he got into that position. He knows what he was getting into, what he's self into. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, as I've said a couple of times, this is still a theory, but it's a very compelling one yeah, with a, a lot of evidence. Yes. To support it. Um, I mean, it's circumstantial, but yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, some of it, I don't know, some of it is stuff that hadn't been put together before. I should also note that Martin Sharp, the artist who did um, the stuff for Luna Park, he actually put a lot of this stuff together before he died, and then he had contacted... Bit of an armchair detective. Yeah, yeah, and then he had contacted some of the survivors, so Jason Holman in particular, he contacted him, and then it he started working with the ABC on this documentary he needs some um, recognition some recognition because he put a lot of this together and caro meldrum is the journalist who worked on the documentary i just thought that it should be um anyway so as such because of all of this evidence following the release of this documentary a new police force has been a new um, task force task force has been put together to review all of the evidence around the case so it's called strike force sedgman 
and they've offered a million dollar reward to anyone who can provide quote fresh and significant information about the fire this is a unique reward because the information doesn't have to lead to the conviction of anyone wow it just has to be fresh i, mean, and significant. I feel like they should just go back to old um what's his face and just go give us that description again <laughs> yeah yeah but it's because it's so long ago now i think that they're having yeah. to like Um, Um, So the police commissioner has said that they will pursue a criminal investigation if they can, but also said to remember that any investigation conducted in 1979 would seem deficient if looking at it through the lens of current times. But I I think also he didn't say this, but I think it's worth noting how much corruption was obviously in that particular police force at the time. Yeah. It's, it's one thing looking back and saying, oh, well they didn't, they didn't check for DNA or whatever it might be. And then going, oh, the, the lead, lead detective, detective was, was being paid off by an underworld figure. By a potential suspect. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't write this in here, but um, they, they spoke to a whole bunch of cops who were working at the time. And they've mm. all said that this um, lead detective, Doug Knight, was like a, I think they called it a um, fix-it man or a, a fix-it something. And it was basically that he could just make an investigation, like, oh, fixed I, it. Yeah. 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 Um, Mm. which is what it seemed it seems like that's what happened yeah and like they showed they showed the cops and the coroner and stuff some of the people who were working on the case and you could see them look at the pictures and be like oh was he working on it (laughs) like they know that they were like yeah Mm. he was crooked he Mm. was in on the joke Mm. so um anyway that's where we're at at the moment it's still a mystery like this they still don't really know because obviously it wasn't a fucking electrical fault like it's i mean mean, it could have been it could have been but it really doesn't it doesn't the evidence doesn't suggest that but yeah i i don't think it was a demonic sacrifice i don't think it was maloc still still weird though still weird but i think it's more likely that it's something to do with the more likely with abe saffron and his cronies so anyone i don't know if we've got anyone listening who's got anything to do with this but anyone who has information about the 1979 luna park ghost train fire they're encouraged to contact crime stoppers on 1800 triple three triple zero or you can get in contact via newsouthwales.crimestoppers.com.au and yeah that is the lunar park ghost train fire of 1979 i didn't sorry i spoke over you then (laughs) (laughs) do you want to take it again or that's fine that's fine um i didn't know that the investigation was still ongoing I thought they'd put it to bed and we're just like... and They and had until this documentary came out. When did the documentary come out? Uh, recently, like past... I think they reopened the investigation in 2021. Oh, okay. Right. So that's what I mean. It's so yeah. compelling, the stuff that the ABC uncovered, that even the police were like, uh, okay, we need to look into that. Yep. I just have my issues with ABC Exposed because it is so dramatised and like, you know. I think though part of the reason it's dramatised is because the stuff they uncover is shocking. Like you are like, what the fuck? How how did that happen? I could how do without fair? the accompanying music, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> if it was just like. I mean, what would l- you prefer? Like dun, 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 dun. No, <laughs> say it and have no music. Let me come to the conclusion. Don't try and like influence me. Do with- you know how weird a documentary without any music would sound? I'd prefer it. I don't think you would. I think it would feel awkward. Imagine just like it'd be like um, it'd be like a like a um mockumentary. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It would. It would be like a mockumentary. They'd like look at the camera. Yeah, that'd be better. It would almost. You'd be like, is I don't know how to feel. Is this funny? You need music. You need music to tell you how to feel. No, I don't. Um. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, great job. Um. You get. You got. You changed my mind. 
Thank you. I thought it was a Satanist. No, I didn't. (laughs) Um, I didn't know what it was. Yeah, I always thought that whenever I've heard about this, it's been talked about in the context of that demon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah, is super creepy and very on brand for our podcast. But Mm, I think that you definitely have to post the photo. Oh, yeah, I will. Yeah. Yeah. But I think in this particular case, it's more important for the truth. Yeah, I mean, for those victims, for their families, their Mm. families are still around. Their parents talked on the thing and were saying, like, we just, we trusted the police. Mm. We just want to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God. I I don't want to tell you, but like, I did bawl my eyes out when I was researching this because when they talk to the family members, um, when they really like go into the lives of the kids and the dad and like, it is so sad. It is like one of the saddest things I've ever watched. It was so horrible. But anyway, I don't want to. Well, everyone should watch it then. Yeah. Oh, I would encourage everyone to get, um, like, I think I said this in, when I talked about the Kelly Lane one, yeah, get, get ABC iView. It's so good. You can watch Bluey all the time. No one cares about Bluey. No one has fucking kids. Yeah, some people will. No one has kids in the world. <laughs> and that's a fact. You can quote me on that. <laughs> That'll be the next you said, that, you said that Nick started listening. I know for a fact he has a child. And I don't will, think so. And he will have watched Bluey. So you can watch Bluey and you can uh, watch all of the ABC um, Exposed. I think there's another one. So I'm going to check out what that is and I might do another episode. <laughs> I watched a show last week that I was just said before and it's called uh, I Survived a Serial Killer and it's really good. Okay. 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 Now there was something I was going to say. That's right. I just didn't want to say it because you were talking about it, it came to my mind when you were talking about the dad sheltering the kids. Yeah, yeah. And I did not want to interrupt with this thought. Yeah. So the thought that I had was in the first episode, I said that um, the smell that accompanies Yetis is sebum. Yeah. That is incorrect. <gasps> the word I was looking for was smegma. Oh, what's sebum? Sebum is just the oils that your skin produces. They don't necessarily smell. Oh, See, um, smegma. you're right. Smegma. Yes. Yeah, it's a um, Cards Against Humanity answer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, you're right. All right, correction corner there. Yeah, obviously it was inappropriate to bring that up when I thought of it. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for not not jumping in with that one. And usually I would, so I showed restraint. (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, so this is going to be a super long episode, so let's 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 wrap it up. Um, Please like, review, subscribe. We we hit 100 followers on Instagram. Thank you, everyone. Which is cool. Yes. My next goal is to have more followers on the Bloody Bizarre podcast Instagram than on my personal one. That won't take long. I want to try and beat myself. Yeah, it won't. It won't. So um, everyone, yeah, jump on board. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye.